And as we come, Lord, to your word, we pray this each time we do. We ask that you would convict us to listen to it as the very words of God, you speaking to us with all the expectation that entails. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, to chapter 3, and to verses 6 to 13. Just let me give you the background. Paul and Silas had planted this little church in Thessalonica. There had been a real, genuine response to the gospel But after no time, barely a month, three weeks, three Sabbaths, Paul and Silas were drummed out of town because of the fierceness of the opposition. The months passed, Paul and Silas were prevented from returning to Thessalonica to see how these young Christians, this young church, were faring. Had they been tempted to set aside their convictions? Had they caved in? Had they abandoned their faith? And Paul felt that separation from them deeply. Just glance at chapter 2, verse 17. They are powerful words. Since we have been torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart. Isn't it great, isn't it? He left his heart there, but he wasn't there. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you. And Paul's words have such sincerity. Why was he so desperate to see them? Because he knew it is one thing to plant a church, it is another to see it established and strong. He knew it is one thing to lead somebody to Christ, it is another to see them established and strong. So he wanted to go back. After nearly a year unable to return himself, he sent Timothy, his trusted envoy and fellow minister, back to Thessalonica. What news would Timothy bring? Well, let's read Timothy's encouraging report. Just these few verses, chapter 3, 6 through 13. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And then listen to this. For now we live. I've got a reason to go on another day, he says. For now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord. Of course, that's real, isn't it? Imagine Jen and Richard going back to Mali or Congo Brazzaville in five years, say, in Congo Brazzaville, and Jen sees somebody who was a new Christian now going on in the Lord. What's she going to say? For now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord, it's real. For now we live. If you are standing fast. That was one of the applications of the sermon a bit early. There you go. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God... As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. 
Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Well, shall we pray for God's help? Paul writes earlier, and we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it is the word of God which is at work in you. Our Father, we pray that we would listen out for your voice, your instruction, and that it would, by your Holy Spirit, be at work in every soul in this room. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, two headings. You'll see them printed on the service sheet. Paul's reason for living, their faith, their love, and their standing fast in the Lord. And second, Paul's commitment to see them keep on growing in their faith and love. They're a little long-winded, but I trust get the heart of what God's Word is saying to us. Three quarters of our time on point one, one quarter on point two, which is really an application of the first point. Firstly, then, Paul's reason for living. What was it that gave Paul the greatest joy? What was it that gave him reason for living? What was it that kept him going through the distress and affliction he often experienced? Now, read with me again from verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see you as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. That's one of uh, the apostles' great statements in the New Testament. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. It's right up there with uh, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is to gain. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. I have reason to live. I feel alive. And Paul is not a kind of glass half full man. He's just not. Life is too tough. For now we live because of your faith and love, that you are standing fast in the Lord. Paul's the kind of guy who would say that with his hand shackled. For now we live. He kind of said that, sung that, when he was in jail in Philippi. For now we live. If you're standing fast in the Lord. Notice how selfless the apostle is. What thrills his heart and gives him reason to live is not his own experience as a Christian, much as that would have thrilled his heart. It is what he sees happening in other people's lives. That's what gets him to see their faith, their love, their standing fast in the Lord. And notice how specific he is. What gets him is their faith, their love, 
They're standing fast. And notice how real he is. For what precedes his statement, for now we live? What precedes it is the middle of verse 7, in all our distress and affliction. We have been comforted about you through your faith, for now we live. The joy Paul knew and felt when he heard what was happening in this church was joy in the midst of distress and affliction in his own life and in ministry. If you wrote a biography of the Apostle Paul, the words distress and affliction might well do as a cover title. And yet his letters are full of joy, full of thanksgiving at the signs of spiritual life in others. It's what kept him going in ministry. It's what brought comfort to his soul. And Paul, I think, in his life came to terms with the fact that the stuff that he wanted to see, the genuine advance in the gospel, would never come in the end without the distress and affliction. And yet he rejoiced in what he saw in other people's lives. Now, a letter like 1 Thessalonians is encouraging and challenging to us in equal measure. And as a minister, or as elders, small group leaders, members of Chalmers Church, let me ask you a question. What is it that sets your heart racing? And and not in a kind of glass half full way, because not many of us are like that, but in my kind of way, and you know what my personality is like, not glass half full, what sets your heart racing? Kind of devoid of personality. What is it that keeps you going in the Christian life? What is it that you come to church on a Sunday or go to your small group on a Tuesday and long to see? Is it like Paul, seeing life in others? Is it seeing faith, love, and standing fast in others? Is that the most important thing to us about church? The more I've thought about this, yes and no, I think, is the answer often. Largely yes here. I want to encourage you in that. The most contented Christians I know, the most fulfilled Christians I know, are the most selfless Christians who rejoice in spiritual life, in others. You see, in the end of the day, Paul is not so much concerned with what he thinks about church, what he feels about church, what he likes about church. Paul is concerned in the end with the signs of real spiritual life in others. It is such a liberating way to live, to live like that the way Paul lived and thought about church. It is the way also that keeps you going through the toughness of ministry, and we're all engaged in that in church, seeing spiritual life in people. Somebody said to me this week, gosh, it's a busy Sunday ahead for you, two services and a baptism in the afternoon. Do you know what? when I think of Cecile and what's happened to her, and she's got clear, strong convictions. If you know her, she does. For now we live because of faith and love and standing fast in the Lord. It's exactly right, isn't it? Now, what I want to do with us this morning is 
get our heads around what faith is, what love is, what's standing fast out. They're kind of in the ether out there, these words. What are they? What, what really do they mean? So, Angus and Hannah, you go to the hospital in Malawi. What is faith, love, and standing fast that you long to see in people's lives? John Calvin. Some of you will know who he is. He's a great uh, reformer, uh, a significant figure in the history of the church. He writes this on these verses. All Christians who aim at the twofold mark of faith and love during their whole life are beyond risk of erring. All others wander miserably. Isn't that striking? All Christians who aim at this twofold mark, faith and love in their lives, are beyond the risk of erring. All others wander miserably. Faith. What is faith? Uh, Paul refers to faith a number of times in the letter. Just look with me. Verse 2, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Verse 5, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. Verse 6, now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith. Verse 7, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. What is Christian faith? What is it? Are we clear as to exactly what it is? I wonder if, well, I know there are people here in church this morning who are considering Christianity. You might be wondering, what is faith? Now, people speak about faith in this kind of way. If it wasn't for my faith, or I wish I had your faith, Now, we might know what we mean by that, but such language can reveal or lead to misunderstanding. It can give the impression that we have a kind of sack of faith, or a bank of faith, or a reservoir of faith that we can draw on. And therefore, when somebody says, I wish I had your faith, that might send them off on a search for faith. People seek faith directly, but faith will never be found. Let me give you an illustration. Your car is bust, and nobody can fix it. You've been to a number of mechanics, and none of them can identify the problem, let alone fix it. And you're telling this to your friend, and he begins to talk to you about his mechanic, about whenever his car is broken down, he takes it to his mechanic who diagnoses the problem and fix it, and he doesn't charge him much either. And at the end of the conversation, your friend says, I have total faith in my mechanic, that man. And what is it that you want? Not your friend's faith in his mechanic. You want his friend's mechanic. You want the person to fix your car. It's not faith we need. It's the mechanic. The starting point in the Christian life, maybe you are at the starting point in the Christian life, is not to seek faith, but to seek the object of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is when you find him, you find faith. It is when you understand who he is and why you need him and what he has done for you and trust him with your life. That is what faith is. Paul had come to Thessalonica and reasoned with them from the Scriptures He had pointed them to Jesus. He had explained their problem. He had explained their need of forgiveness. He had explained to them to run with a mechanic image that the the big end of their engine had broken down. He explained what the problem was. 
and that Jesus would meet their need, and they came to a reasoned, restful trust in Jesus. Now, there's a great description of faith, a reasoned, restful trust in Jesus. Reasoned in your mind, restful trust in Christ. And these Christians in Thessalonica had a reasoned, restful trust in Jesus. It is what Paul had seen in them when he had gone to them first with the gospel with Silas, and it's what he saw still when Timothy came back. Reasoned, restful trust in Jesus. Yes, Paul, that's what is going on in that church. Reasoned, restful trust in Jesus. Real faith, and it thrilled Paul's heart, saying, all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted, because in your church, there are people who are settled, resting, reasoned, trusting in the Lord Jesus. For now we live. When you see that in a church, it brings joy to your heart. Now, today, as I said, we celebrate Cecile's conversion, and oh, for more of that. That's what we long to see. Today, we welcome you to Jen and Richard home and send out you to Angus and Hannah. And I pray that in your spheres of serving God, nothing will ever set your hearts ablaze more than seeing real faith birthed and growing. In our church family, in our small groups, what a joy it is to see reasoned, restful trust in someone's life. This week, with folks in the church, we were able to spend time with somebody arranging their funeral. What did we see? Reasoned, restful trust in Jesus. Now, that's faith. What about love? What does he mean by love? Verse 6, Timothy has brought us the good news of your faith and love. Now, the love that Paul is speaking about here is not love for God, I think, but love for one another, love for our fellow believers, me loving you, you loving me, you loving the person next to you, which you might think is hard, but nonetheless... That's what he's talking about. How do we know? Well, look at verse 12. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. The reference there to and for all is not, I think, an all-encompassing, sweeping love. He probably has in mind their love for Christians in other churches. That's a good thing, isn't it? One of the great things about having you speak to us, you two, is that we are reminded that the gospel is all over the earth. And when you said hello, and we said in our very gentle Scottish way, hello. That, I think, is what he's talking about here. Our love for one another in our own church community primarily, but also our relationships with other Christians. Now, the theology behind this is sound. When somebody becomes a Christian a real Christian, they are not only reconciled to God, i.e. brought back into a relationship of love with Him, but reconciled to one another, their fellow believers, 
brought back into a relationship of love towards them. Think of it like this. When you become a Christian, you become part of God's family. How do you know? Well, that language is all over the New Testament. We are children of God, and we have a family relationship with one another. We often speak of being part of a church family. That is not a kind of vague, sentimental, gushy, nice thing. It's theologically bang on. It's accurate. We are related to one another in Christ. And Paul uses family language in the letter. So he speaks of himself in chapter 2 as a mom and a dad to them. He refers to the Christians in Thessalonica 2.17 as brothers, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 2, Timothy is our brother and co-worker. Chapter 3, verse 7, for this reason, brothers. It's family language. And families are to love one another, to look out for one another, to serve one another, to share with one another, to encourage with one another, to strengthen one another, and to forgive one another when they drive you crazy. See, family language in the church is not kind of Christian, warm and cuddly sentiment. It's bang on the button, theologically. So Paul is able to say, chapter 2, verse 8, feisty Paul, and uh, Paul's not the kind of naturally effusive, gushy person. He's able to say from his heart, chapter 2, verse 8, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. If I, as your minister, am no longer affectionately desirous of you and ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but my own life, you need a new minister. If you're not prepared to do that in your small groups, you need a small group. That's what it is real. It's powerful. And the love that Paul is talking about here is practical. It is a spiritual edge. Uh, He speaks at the beginning of the letter and the end about a labor of love, helping the weak, patience, encouraging the idle, the faint-hearted. That's what loving one another in a loving church looks like. And when he sees that or hears about it, whether in Thessalonica or in any of the other churches he had a close bond with, he says, in the midst of his stress and affliction, for now we live. When I came home last night after the Scottish evening, it was full of folks who are not Christians who are thinking about Christianity, I I kind of found myself almost beginning to feel unsafe for now we live. Seeing the fellowship of Christians, the genuine love to one another, for now we live. And the question is, is it a description of our church family? Is there real Christian love for one another going on in our Sunday small groups through the week? Yes, I think there is. With all our feelings and weaknesses, it kind of, the Scottish bit in me wants to say, not nearly enough. Rightly so. But it is there. It is there. But what if you just do not feel that love from others in the church? Well, it might well be that your brothers and sisters in the Lord have let you down. That happens quite often. And you might be sitting here thinking, well, I have let somebody down. Well, sort it out. 
But the fault might be with us if we don't feel loved. In two ways. One, you really struggle to let others love you or care for you. Or perhaps you're not loving them. In my experience as a minister, the people who are often the most unhappy or unsettled in a church are those who are least engaged. Let me be very personal. When I am struggling most in church, invariably Sally will say to me, either something like, stop messing around, stop feeling sorry for yourself, or when she's at her most encouraging, just love them. So if I'm kind of on one of these tough little email exchanges, just love them. It's not kind of soft, putty stuff. I mean, it, it, it can mean exhorting, encouraging, being patient. Just love them. Just love them. The medicine, if you are out of sorts in church, is to be selfless and to be loving. Thirdly, standing fast in the Lord. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that the Christians in Thessalonica had not caved in, that their convictions had not wavered, that they were standing fast. It's like, I think, if you're standing in the surf, and this is a kind of get-ready-for-the-summer-holiday image, if you're standing in the surf and the current is dragging at your feet, but you know you're standing fast, it's not easy, and it still wasn't easy in Thessalonica, far from it. The undercurrents of opposition were strong, the temptation to drift, to be pulled this way or that, yet they were standing fast in the Lord. And that's a great mark of genuineness because it's tested genuineness. It's been tested and proved. And it brought great encouragement to Paul, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And so a Christian that is committed to the Bible, committed to the simple gospel, committed to prayer, and keeps steady in these commitments through bright days and dark days, and over the years is worth their weight in gold in a church. There's an old Christian man I know, he's not in this church, another church, whom his minister describes to me in this way. He is consistent, he is steady, he is always there, he is reliable, And what he is describing is someone who is standing fast in the Lord. People like that across a church. See, when I look out on a Sunday, one of the habits that you take with you wherever you are, in whatever building you are in, is that you always sit in the same seats. It's hardwired into humanity's DNA. And I look out on a Sunday, and I see you're in your seat. It's not about attendance. It's not about all of that. It's just a kind of reminder, week in, week out, that people are going on standing fast in the Lord. Or when you meet someone who is a Christian after not seeing them for a while, maybe after months or years, and you see that they are standing fast in the Lord, the joy, the pleasure it brings is real. We have a godson, Daniel. We didn't see him much when he was growing up. His parents are missionaries with OMF in Japan. We see him a lot now. We feed him and his brother Matthew, they're in Glasgow, it's a great thing to see them standing fast in the Lord. It's wonderful to tell his mom and dad they're standing fast in the Lord. It gives you reason to live. 
Paul's reason for living, their faith, their love, and their standing fast in the Lord. The application to us as a church, what makes a church real is when it is full of people who are selfless, who do not come into this community for what they will gain or what they will get, who are selfless, who look for life, 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 life in others, and who have the sharp eye to look for real life, real faith, that's settled, reasoned, trust, real love, and to see people standing fast in the Lord. That is the route to the greatest joy and fulfillment in the Christian life. And in the midst of affliction and difficulty, with teeth gritted, Paul will say, for now we really am alive. Now, Secondly, and just by way of application, more briefly, you don't really believe that, but I promise it's true. Paul's commitment to see them keep on growing in their faith and love. You know, Paul worries about them. Neil brought that out very clearly last week when Paul was separated from them, when he wasn't able to see them. He worried about them. Were they okay? Had they been tempted? Had they drifted? Had they set aside their convictions? In truth, I worry most about you lot when I don't see you. I worry about you when you've not been around on a Sunday. I worry about you when you're not going to your small group. And I kind of often make inquiries gently because I'm worried. Drift is risky. It's not about being here on a Sunday and signing in or being in your small group and signing in. It's about constantly in a rhythm in your life coming under the authority of God's Word. It's about constantly meeting and talking with other Christians who will edify you and encourage you. It's constantly about just coming and being part of a community that's real and alive. Absence, separation, when you see it in people, should be felt. And Paul wants them to keep going on in their faith. Look at verses 9 and 10. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, and we pray most earnestly night and day that he may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, as joyful as Paul is about what he sees about real faith, he says something pretty straight here. He says, the words in Greek mean, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to fix the tear in your net. What's lacking? That's the, 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 the image here. It's not, I think, that Paul knows there's some serious problem he's going to address. He just knows there always will be. There'll always be the risk of a tear in the fisherman's net. Paul's constant commitment in ministry is to mend the nets of people. And a true heart for others in a church is not only to rejoice in signs of spiritual life, but to constantly see that faith grow. How do you look to see faith grow? You do so by teaching one another the Word of God through reading and studying it in our small groups and reading and studying it ourselves. Remember the definition of faith, reasoned, restful trust in Jesus. That comes first and goes on and deepens as we listen to God and His Word and respond in willing obedience. So what has happened in the last 30 minutes, or four of them, if you've been asleep for 26 of them? The Word of God has been at work in your lives, inevitably. Reasoned, restful trust in Jesus. That's why it's so important we keep coming to mend each other's 
nets. And then Paul wants, secondly, to keep them growing in their love. Verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus Christ direct our ways to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for all of you. Which is easier in a church? One, to see people's faith grow through teaching them the word of God, A, or B, seeing people in a church loving one another more and more. Which is easier? A, by miles. It's the hardest thing to achieve in a church, genuine love from disparate people. And that's why I think Paul says here, ask God to make them love one another. May our God make your love for one another increase and abound. If you are struggling to love somebody in church and you know they are struggling to love you, pray for them. Pray that you will love them. Pray they will love you. If you or someone you know in the church is critical, negative, selfish, not building others up, encouraging them, hopefully not all of these things at the same time, then ask the Lord, if that is you, to give you a heart to love people, to give you a heart to be liberated from selfishness to selflessness like the Apostle Paul, and ask them to love you in prayer. Paul's reason for living, faith, love, and standing fast when he saw it in others, his commitment to see them keep on growing in their faith and love. And you you can just feel, I think, as we finish, if a church is full of people like that who rejoice in spiritual life in others, and you've got a sharp eye to know what they are really looking to see, and who love them, What a wonderful place that is to be part of. And what is it all for in the end? What's the goal? So that, Paul ends in these verses, God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. God will finally establish our hearts blameless in holiness before him when his son comes again. That day will come, and every day it gets one day closer. And so keep on, keep on encouraging, loving one another, real faith, real love, standing fast in the Lord. Well, let's be quiet for a moment and let God's word sink in. And then we'll pray and we'll sing. Our Father, thank you for these words, your words in Scripture, full of truth, encouragement, and challenge. And may we as a church family and every one of us within this family of Chalmers be selfless, rejoicing, relishing evidence of real faith, real love, real standing fast in the Lord, in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And may we look out for one another, teaching, studying, listening to your word, that we might grow in faith to maturity. And will you make our love for one another increase and abound? And may it all be done with the goal of glory, fixed and set clear 
in our minds. For Jesus' sake. Amen.